0: So welcome listeners. This is a podcast recorded for the American Thoracic Society Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly. My name's Rachel Evans. I'm a respiratory physician from England, UK, from Leicester, a respirologist if I was in North America. And I'm joined today by um Alex Jenkins, who's going to interview with me. He's a scientist by background and recently has completed his PhD uh, around the area of pulmonary rehabilitation. We're delighted today to introduce Russell Winwood, who completed an Ironman this year. This, as most of you will know, is a a very difficult endurance event that most of us wouldn't even imagine undertaking. And this achievement is even more impressive when you find out that he was diagnosed with COPD back in 2011. He also uses supplemental uh, oxygen so, Russell, thank you so much for agreeing to do this uh, podcast for us. I was hoping before we get to the events that you've been doing, I would like just to take our listeners back in time to when um, you were diagnosed uh, with COPD uh, and what happened around that time.
1: Uh, thank you, Rachel and, uh, and Alex. Um, I was diagnosed with COPD back in 2011, Uh, I'd gone through a period of time where my health wasn't great and my breathing had become more and more laboured and my general practitioner had referred me to a respiratory doctor. My initial spirometry indicated I had an FEV1 of 22% and I was classified as a severe COPD patient. Back in those days, uh, walking... Uh, generally just doing day-to-day chores was very difficult. Uh, my day consisted of uh, getting out of bed, uh, going to work for a couple of hours and then coming home and, and sleeping for most of the day. I guess for patients who have COPD, they know that the, the energy you spend with your breathing really does wear you out and that was certainly my experience back then.
0: Okay, so had you heard of COPD prior to being diagnosed?
1: No, not at all. Uh, COPD was something very foreign. I'd been a uh, asthmatic since I was a child, uh, but never heard of uh, the disease called COPD. So when I was diagnosed, um, I was a little bit um, miffed about what it was all about. Um, and I guess one of the mistakes I made that I think a lot of patients make is uh, they go home and uh, they ask Dr. Google what COPD is, which um, I would not advise to do.
0: Yeah, and what did you find out when you when you looked it up?
1: What I found out was back then there wasn't a great um, um, uh, future for someone with severe COPD. And I guess it also depends on what your search criteria is and um, I think I made the mistake of entering life expectancy for someone someone with severe COPD and I think back then it was, was, the answer I was given was between 8 and 10 years so at the age of uh, 45 when I was diagnosed that was certainly not something I wanted wanted to read.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So do you remember what your um, initial thoughts were around that time? How you were feeling?
1: Look, initially very confused, um, upset obviously, and I guess part of that was because of my history of of, um, poor health. Uh, I'd actually had a stroke when I was 36 years old, and that was brought about through very poor lifestyle. I was a heavy drinker, heavy smoker and I'd rebuilt my health after my stroke and I thought I was doing all the right things. So to then be diagnosed with COPD was was very upsetting and certainly uh, the initial stage of my diagnosis was uh, full of depression uh, because I just didn't know what the future uh, held for me.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And can you remember, you were saying a bit about the interaction you had with the healthcare services, but do you remember what treatments you were offered right back at the beginning?
1: Basically, I was given uh, some inhalers to take, uh, three different inhalers, and unfortunately that was about it back then. uh, I don't know whether it's much different um, overseas to what it is in Australia, but um, there wasn't a lot of um, information, I guess, about COPD. Um, it was more, um, here's your medication and uh, go home and, and, uh, and that was it, really.
0: Okay. And do you remember, was pulmonary rehabilitation mentioned to you at that point, because you were saying that you were struggling really even to walk at that point?
1: No, there was there was no mention of pulmonary rehabilitation back then, and part of the reason for, for it not being mentioned, I suspect, is our rehabilitation programs in Australia are, are not great. Um, they're certainly better now than what they were back then, and I think uh, it was an unreliable service. I guess would be the best way to describe it. Um, so,
0: can I just qualify you sort of, that? You mean that access. Um, Was access difficult, as in it wasn't really provided, is that what?
1: Access and what I found was uh, classes um, that were advertised as being run had closed down, so it was difficult to find uh, a a program um, at that stage.
0: Okay. And have you actually done a program at some point, uh, you know, over the last few years?
1: Well it's funny because I'm absolutely an advocate of pulmonary rehabilitation and I've attended classes uh, as a speaker and as an observer but I've actually never been through a program myself uh, simply uh, because by the time I actually was able to access a class I'd undertaken my own rehabilitation uh, which had got me to the point where I was then deemed um, too well, if you like, to to undertake pulmonary rehabilitation.
0: Okay. Now, I was always intrigued, actually, whether you were somebody, um, because just for our listeners, actually, I was aware of um, Russell, or a.k.a. COPD Athlete, uh, really through Twitter. Uh, And I was curious, really, whether you were somebody where exercise had always been a regular part of your life, and therefore, and then when you got your uh, lung diagnosis you um you know tailored what was already a routine for you, but actually you 've already indicated that that wasn 't the case, and you weren 't referred to pulmonary rehabilitation so how on earth really did you get from you know what where you 've just described being breathless, just you know walking, feeling incredibly fatigued, you know sleeping for quite a lot of the day, feeling very low what, How did you get to where you are now? Well,
1: um, it's a good question and I think um, to answer it properly, it's a combination of myself and my wife. Um, As I say, we're left a a bit to our own devices, so we sort of had to come up with something that was going to get out of this this hole that I'd fallen into. We'd both uh, been involved in sports when we were younger and knew that that exercise was good for you. And really that was the only thing we could think of that could help. Um, So starting from then, uh, exercise for me was trying to get out and walk around the block, um, however fast I could do it, which back then was quite slow. And I talk a lot uh, to patients about building your exercise capacity and I guess you know that's what I did over time is is consistently uh, walked uh, further and further each time I went out and gradually I, I was able to build my exercise capacity.
0: Yes, and can you remember right back at the beginning sort of what were your aims by exercising? It sounds as much to you kind of help both your um, psychological as much as your physical health, but can you remember what was really motivating you to get out each day, do that walk, which was probably quite uncomfortable to do at that time, I should imagine?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I remember thinking about, you know, what lay ahead for me and the things I want to experience in life that were all of a sudden at risk. And they were seeing my kids grow up, seeing my kids get married, and seeing my grandkids. And to me, that was the number one drive as family, and um, being around long enough to see all these events and and watch my my children grow up.
0: Okay, well, thanks very much for that very, very interesting um, brief about your background, Russell. I'm going to hand you over to... um, Alex now, who's going to discuss a bit more about how you actually got from doing that daily walk around the block to starting some of the endurance events that you've participated in.
2: Thank you, Rachel. So um, I've also followed Russell's journey quite closely through Twitter, and um, he's got quite a history of taking part in endurance events. So to kind of start with, Russell, if you could explain to our listeners how you started and have also managed to maintain undertaking endurance events. Okay, I guess the start was
1: um, when I was building my exercise capacity and I was out walking every day, I noticed that I was actually feeling better. And the more I walked, the longer I walked, the better I felt. And I think whether it's a natural process or or not, it was certainly not a conscious thing. I noticed that I was able to control my breathing better. And the faster I got, yes, I'd become more breathless, but I was able to control that breathless better. And whether that's because my fitness was improving, I'm not not quite sure. But after a period of time, I said to my wife that um, I'd like to... um, hop on a bike and and try and ride a bike again. And so I I applied the same uh, mentality to what I was doing with walking, is hopping on a bike and just doing slow, short rides and and building that capacity uh, as well. Uh, Before I was diagnosed, a number of years before, I was um, doing triathlons, just uh, short distance. And I always joked with my wife that... uh, one day I'd like to do an Ironman event. So I guess as I was building my exercise capacity, I think in the back of my mind, I was thinking that maybe if I could build it to a certain extent, I could I could maybe start to thinking about doing a triathlon again. So I kept along with that. And then after a period of time, I decided I wanted to try and start swimming again. Um, and that was interesting to say the least because what i found is i hopped in the pool and as soon as i started to swim i became so breathless i i pretty much just sank to the bottom of the pool uh, which wasn't a pleasant experience so we sort of had to think about all right how can i get in the pool and swim safely and we knew about a device called a pool boy, which is a flotation device that you put between your legs and basically it keeps from your waist down, afloat. So, when you apply that to swimming, all you have to do is basically stroke with your arms um, to swim. So that's how I started swimming again, is by using a pool de- pool boy device and just did short distances. So. What I found is I ended up doing this consistently throughout the week. So every day of the week I was doing something. I was either walking, uh, riding my bike, and generally once a week trying to swim some sort of distance. And I guess that's how my my journey into um, into, uh, distance events started.
2: Great great stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how you've uh, dealt with some of the barriers that you've been faced with. So um, you mentioned there that you've done running, cycling and and swimming and a combination of the three as well. So just kind of if you could give us some insight into what events you've uh, taken part in in the previous few years. Well,
1: the first event I did after diagnosis diagnosis was actually an Ironman. And that was here in Australia in a place called Port Macquarie. And I I remember um, quite clearly clearly the day I said to my wife that I want to go and do an Ironman event. And uh, she laughed um, (laughs) for quite a while because she thought I was being ridiculous. And she said to me, she said, I'll tell you what, we'll go and see your respiratory doctor and see what he says about the idea. So... uh, we made an appointment and went and saw my respiratory doctor and I told him that I wanted to do an Ironman. And I, I had the same response from him as I did from my wife. He, he was thought it was quite comical. But to his credit, he said to me, he said, if you want to train for an Ironman, he says, I'll support you as long as you train by the parameters that I set you. And that sort of set my journey up. And... For the next year, um, I trained for an Ironman event, uh, which in 2012 um, I did. Now, for Ironman, you have 17 hours to complete the event, and my first Ironman I did in 16 hours and 50 minutes, um, which was quite exhausting, as you could imagine. Um, yeah. It wasn't easy, you know, it was a very difficult day for me, um, but it's sort of... A day that I was particularly proud of because I was able to do something that I didn't think I'd ever be able to do again. But it also shaped or reshaped my view about how you can live well with COPD.
2: And um, so, in the sense of you've you've covered kind of an Ironman there, but you've also done some other events. You've done some marathons as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So. What I like
1: to do when I do events is, is do them as a, a fundraiser and uh, over the years I've done the New York Marathon uh, as a fundraiser for the American Lung Association and then I did the London Marathon for the uh, British Lung Foundation. Uh, then last year I did the Boston Marathon uh, for a Tufts Medical Centre who have a, a pulmonary rehab program. Uh, So I enjoy the the marathons, they're a little less taxing than an Ironman, but it gives me the opportunity to raise awareness for COPD, uh, but also to raise funds uh, for different foundations.
2: And um, when you've took part in these events in the past, have you encountered any major issues you'd like to raise, or potentially how you've got around any of these issues that you've encountered with doing these uh, quite long endurance events
1: i think the most important thing i've learned over the years is to listen to your body and the preparation whether it's for an ironman or a marathon uh, is the same as far as knowing when to stop training knowing when you have to rest and looking for signs of of becoming sick and that's the one thing that that is so important is being able to identify how far you can push yourself without actually harming yourself so it's it's a real challenge to get to the start line of any of these events in one piece uh, without having uh, infections exacerbations and that sort of thing Um, on top of that you're traveling uh, to different countries so I generally like to arrive a week before the event so I can acclimatise and, and get myself um, as well as I can for race day. Um, when I fly, I, I travel with oxygen, so it does take me a while to get over a long-distance flight. So these are all things you've got to take into account when preparing for events. Uh, but I'm a big believer in in trying to keep you yourself... Um, away from triggers to your disease and to monitor you know how you're going and how you're feeling during during the training
2: great stuff thank you for that insight so what we're going to do now is we're going to move on to your recent Ironman event um in particular you have mentioned that you've done a couple in the past but uh the recent one that you've undertaken is uh, quite important, um given that this is the first time you've done it with the use of oxygen so Um, Could you just remind the listeners, um, and for those of us who might not be aware, of what an Ironman actually involves? Well,
1: Ironman, um, depending on the the country and the the measure of the distance, um, is for for the swim uh, component, it is 3.8 kilometre swim, or 2.4 miles. The cycling component is 180 kilometres, or 112 miles. And then it's finished off with of a, a nice marathon at 42 kilometres or 26 miles, and depending on where you are, the cut-off time for that is between 16 and a half and 17 hours.
2: So it's a, it's a
1: grueling event.
2: You, you can say that again, so uh, it, it's grueling for the majority of people, let alone if you're trying to complete it with a lung condition as well. So when um, a few of us heard about your, your ambitions to complete Ironman, um, we assumed that you had very mild COPD, but we, as we've discovered that that's not the case. So in the lead up to the Ironman, what was the medical advice you received when you first started planning for it? My doctor and I established many years ago that
1: it's important to monitor my oxygen levels when I'm training and I know particular heart rates that I've got to avoid. Uh, generally my training I, I try and keep my heart rate under 150 beats per minute and that's because quite often my oxygen levels will, will drop um, significantly once I go over that. Um of recent times, of course, I've had to use oxygen when I do events. I mean, that's come about from an exacerbation I had in 2017. Um, had left me with some more damage. And nowadays, I, I have to use supplementary oxygen uh, when I exercise. And whether I'm running or cycling, um, I, I have to use that oxygen. Okay,
2: fantastic. And... So with this Ironman then, how did you approach the training? So it seems that you have a very good understanding of your body in, in partnership with your, um, your doctor. Um, did you encounter any particular setbacks during your training program? And if you did, how did you manage to come back from these? I guess the
1: hardest part for this race was a lot of the training was done in the summer months. And for me, um, my breathing is even more laboured with um, high humidity. So that was one of the big challenges. So I overcome that by doing a lot of training uh, at night time. So a lot of my longer runs or even my shorter runs were done uh, sort of late at night. You know, I'm talking around 8pm and onwards um, with the cycling. uh, I would try and get out very early in, in the morning before the heat of the day hit and sometimes you just couldn't avoid it so i always had the mentality that i was better off missing a training session than rather putting my body under too much stress and here in australia our summers can get very humid so it's a matter of you know picking those days where the weather is uh, is kinder uh, for you to train in, and making the most of those days, and those the other days where the humidity is is quite high, um, they're the days I would either not train or I might do a session in the gym. Um, I was fortunate with this um, preparation, is that I stayed uh, pretty well the whole way through. Um, the only episode I had is it was unfortunately about a week or two weeks before the race, um, I noticed that my oxygen levels on a daily basis had dropped and I was starting to feel a bit tighter in the chest. Um, so it was a matter of backing off the training and just trying to get my body right for the the race. But that's, that's really the only problem I had leading into it.
0: Can I just ask, Um, Russell, sorry to chip in, um, but you mentioned about the oxygen, and a lot of patients that I see, you know, struggle uh, with the actual device um, itself, certainly in the UK, some of our um, portable devices are still quite heavy, without going into the details of the makes or anything, but could, could you just explain a little bit about how you actually manage the oxygen, you know, particularly as you're saying, you're doing these events for many hours.
1: Look, um, I have this theory in life that anything you want to do that's difficult, you just have to keep doing it. Um, And for myself and many other patients, you know, walking upstairs is an issue. So our last house we bought, we bought a house that's got stairs. Because the more I walk upstairs, the better I am at it and the more used to it you get. It's the same with uh, carrying portable oxygen. Um, Everywhere I go, uh, whether I'm walking, running, doing whatever, I've got an oxygen backpack on my back so I can get used to it. Uh, The more I use it, you know, it just becomes part of my body. So when I'm running, you know, I run with a a backpack unit. And when I'm riding, I have manufactured a a rack on the back of my bike which the unit mounts on and then the, the tube comes up from there. So... It's just a matter of um, persistence, practicing, and, you know, it just becomes part of your life, really.
0: Oh, thank you.
2: So you've alluded to one episode that you had pretty close to the run-up to your Ironman. So to to avoid um, these episodes throughout the whole training program that you had, you must have had some form of a management strategy in place. So we're just wondering whether we could have a little bit of insight into... Uh, what your management strategy consisted of, in particular any coping strategies or the diets you've undertaken or any inhalers, the timing of use of inhalers? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm a firm believer that
1: nutrition plays a huge part in this disease. And, you know, there is research going on and research in the past that certainly shows that what you eat I uh, can play uh, a key role in, in how you breathe. So leading into any event, um, I'm very strict on my diet. Um, you know, it's important for me to have a, a strong immune system because when you're doing endurance events, that's the first thing that takes a hit is, is your immune system. So it's diet, um, I actually have taken a supplement um, that was recommended to me um, back in the early days, it's uh, it's a zinc powder and I firmly believe it actually has helped build my immune system um, because the times um, over the years where I haven't taken it because I haven't been able to get supply or whatever, I've actually become ill a couple of those times. So it's something I take every single night of my life, um, and I think it does make a difference. When I'm feeling more breathless um, on certain days, there's certain medications that I will increase to help cope with that. Um, but really, it's it's what I said before. It's about just monitoring um, your body and how you're feeling. You know, uh, whether you're a person with lung disease or a person perfectly healthy person. Uh, Training when you're not feeling 100% is is not advised. You're far better off resting your body, recuperating and and then going on from there. And I'm a firm believer that when you combine a good nutritional program and good exercise program, you really create a good environment for your body to, to heal itself, so to speak. So I'm very much into um, creating that environment, especially when I'm training for endurance events.
2: So you you say there, interestingly, that your immune system is the first one to take a hit, and you make sure that your diet's kind of supporting your immune system. So in terms of after the Ironman, how did you feel afterwards? Did you have any complications following attempting to complete the Ironman? Not not so much
1: um, apart from what happened on the day, which I'm sure we'll go into. into. Uh, What I've found over the years is changing my nutritional strategies has absolutely made a difference to my recovery from events. And earlier events, uh, my wife hated the aftermath because it generally meant days of uh, very shallow breathing, Um, I've become quite um, phlegmy and a lot of coughing and that sort of thing. Uh, Since I've changed uh, my nutrition, um, I I don't experience those symptoms at all anymore. Uh, My recovery is very good. In fact, I I remember um, uh, the first time I actually raced using the nutritional strategies I do was the London Marathon. And I could safely say the day after that race, I could have quite happily run another marathon. And what was interesting is after the race, uh, I caught up with one of the staff from the British Lung Association and he looked at me and said, you don't even look like you've run a marathon. And, you know, I think these are important things for for patients um, to realise is there's things you can do that will help you and your disease in day-to-day life and, you know, there's, there's not a, a one-size-fits-all. One you have to find out what works for you. So what I'm talking about here is something that absolutely works for me. It, it may not work for everyone, but it's something that, you
2: know,
1: uh, I've had a lot of success with.
2: Great stuff. Thank you. And in terms of the Ironman itself then, so could you give us a brief insight into how you found your Ironman adventure with using supplementary oxygen? Well, it was a learning experience.
1: I can say that because uh, it's not as if I could go and ask for advice on how to do an IMA with supplementary oxygen, um, because I, I haven't found anyone else who, who's attempted it. And I certainly learned some valuable lessons on the day. I think the most important thing I learned is that you can't. It's very hard to train and prepare for a race with supplementary oxygen because the demands you have for oxygen in a training session can be very different to your demands on a race day and that was what happened uh, to me on the day. Uh, Basically I became a lot more breathless than I thought I would uh, because of conditions um, which meant I had to use more oxygen than what I thought I would need which meant more battery power. And at the end of the day, my, my race ended up ending um, earlier than I would have liked, simply because I was, uh, I was uh, short of battery power, as I'd used too much oxygen during the race. Um, so, you know, there's things I've certainly taken away, um, but you, you can't really account for what Mother Nature might throw for you uh, uh, on the day.
2: Yes, certainly. There's some things, unfortunately, you can't control, but it was um, great to hear that uh, you managed to get so far anyway with supplementary oxygen. Um, So, moving on slightly, in terms of healthcare professionals potentially listening to this podcast, they might be interested to know what um, advice they should give to their patients based on your perspective if they encounter a patient who wants to do more exercise than uh, healthcare professionals are used to prescribing. So could you provide kind of your perspective on that? Yeah, I think it's important to, I always say, never judge a
1: a patient by their numbers because I think uh, what our spirometry shows us doesn't really measure a patient's will or determination to do something. And, you know, I've seen other patients go out and, and, and perform incredible speech that if you looked at their diagnosis, you would think there's no way in the world they could do things like that. So I think it's important for healthcare professionals to firstly encourage patients um, to get out and do uh, more activity if that's what they want to do. And I think for those patients who, I guess, are concerned about exercising or, or don't particularly, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, are excited about the prospect of exercise making them more breathless, the one thing I'd say is you always find that next breath. And it was one of my concerns when I first started exercising is you get so short of breath where's that next breath going to come from but your know, body's an um, amazing machine and even with severe lung disease it, it will find that next breath and the more you push yourself safely uh, the better your body is at, uh, at dealing with
2: um you know your lung disease and, and most of us struggle to exercise in general um, as much as we should do so What motivates you to exercise and do these events? What's your main driver? Quality of life, without a shadow of a
1: doubt. I mean, I'm, I guess, sitting on the other side of the fence now where my FEV1 is no longer as low as it, it used to be. It's still not fantastic by any measure. But I can live a quality of life now that I never thought I would. And I guess... Uh, What really hit home to me was after my first Ironman event, um, my doctor encouraged me to take uh, two or three months off training and let my body recuperate, which made a lot of sense to me. But what I actually found is over that period of time, my health went downhill because I wasn't exercising. Uh, So I don't make that mistake anymore. Exercise is no longer something I, I... I have to do, it's, it's a part of my life, it's a lifestyle for me and I think for a patient that's what you have to do is that you've got to make it your lifestyle and whatever that is, you know, you don't have to be running marathons or, or things like that. Um, set yourself goals and, and make sure you do them because the rewards are well worth it.
0: And Russell, just to interject there as well, um, although you were saying that your FEV1 is a bit better than it was, um, and I know that you've said, it's OK for me to give this information. Your FEV1 <laughs> is now still less than 40% predicted, isn't it? So it's still in the what we would classify as you know, severe disease. Yeah, that's
1: right, Rachel. But I look at it, it's, uh, it's 38% and rising.
0: Yes. <laughs> but it really does go so, as you were saying, um that we shouldn't just you know look at the uh numbers and you were saying you know that um uh, a lot comes from a person's will to do something um. And also, it just goes to show as well that the lung function is really not the sole determinant of what somebody can do, apart from their own um, will, you know, uh, the ability of skeletal muscles, isn't it, to uh, really um, improve what they can do. And I I think you really are, you know, living proof of that beyond even what I thought was physiologically uh, possible.
1: Look, I think it's important for patients to realise is your body can do some pretty amazing things. And I remember having a conversation with a respiratory scientist here in Australia about the changes I was seeing in my quality of life. And he said to me, he said, I suspect it's just your body changing and learning to deal with your your new life, with lung disease. And you know it's like an elite athlete they go out and exercise and they get faster and fitter we do exactly the same Mr. just that our faster and fitter is not the same as theirs but it still has a a big impact on what you can do every day and your goal doesn't have to be you know running marathons as i said your goal could be simply improving your quality of life doing those things That you want to do, whether that's gardening, you know, taking the dog for a walk, whatever it is, um, that can be your marathon. It doesn't have to be doing silly things that I do sometimes.
0: (laughs) Well, I think we can all take a, a, a leaf out of your book, Russell. Certainly, I've tried to uh, increase the distance, which I won't um, announce to all our listeners. Uh, so think, well, if you can do it. I need to do a little bit more. Now, if I can just take us back to pulmonary rehabilitation, um, uh, which, as we know, involves an individually tailored exercise program. And we know that this is beneficial to people with COPD. But even in countries where it is widely accepted, We do um, find it difficult actually to engage people with it, even though we know that it can help um, people to manage their breathlessness, help people walk for longer, and, and as you've really strongly highlighted, the most important thing, to feel better in themselves. So what do you think healthcare professionals could could do to um, encourage people with COPD to participate in pulmonary rehabilitation and exercise? Um, And I think sometimes it's the way that healthcare professionals maybe talk about things. So um, I was really interested um, to hear your phrase, you'll always find the next breath, because that's something I would never think of um, to say. But what do you think patients really need to hear?
1: Look, I think it is that, you know, you will always find the next breath. Uh, I think, you know, they've got to be confident that that's going to happen and they've got to see that there is, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. You know, no one's going to do something that they don't see results in. You know, they will give that up very quickly. But I think it's important for healthcare professionals to talk to patients about doing things they like to do. If you don't like running, then you're not going to stick to it. If you don't like riding a bike, then you're not going to stick to it. You know, your, your exercise may be simply dancing. You know, there's singing groups. There's all sorts of things. So there's, there are goals that you can have. And going through pulmonary rehab will give you the tools to reach those goals. And I think that's so important. I know from my own perspective and this is a saying for, that I picked up from another patient who always says, patients listen to patients. And it's very true, if if a patient can see another patient responding well, they're going to be more inclined to fo- follow that patient. I mean, we can all say things um, to try and convince people to do things, but it's the actions and it's what you can see, I think. They're the powerful things. Now, I know myself through my website and through social media. I, there's not a week go past that a patient won't contact me and thank me because they've seen what I've done and now it's given them the inspiration to to do it as well. And, and I'm not the only one. There, there's a lot of patients out there who are doing this who are pushing themselves and showing what's possible. And I think it's so important for for patients to see that they don't have to be their diagnosis. They can be so much more. Um, and, you know, that's the message you've got to get across to patients is, you know, this is your disease, but where do you want to go from here? And, uh, and you know, join the patient on their journey. You know, my doctor certainly has done that. Um, you know, we have a great relationship, and that's been built on what I've done. You know, he's, he's said to me in the past that he's learnt a lot from me in my journey, um, which has helped with other patients. So, you know, I think it's, it's so important...
0: Yeah, that's really really helpful advice, um, Russell. Both for patients and for us that are um, in you know as healthcare professionals and for Alex's researchers actually to see you know what uh, further things we can think of in future to help. Now I understand that you run your own series of podcasts. So would you be able to provide us some details on these and, and what they cover if if our listeners want to um, you know hear more about what you've been um, doing. Yeah I do. I, I started this off um,
1: oh, a year or two ago now, uh, basically to sort of bring some information to people, um, both patients and, and respiratory professionals, about how I manage my disease and the topics are around that sort of thing. So you know I cover nutrition, um, medications, uh, that sort of thing and I guess it's a patient's perspective. And I'm I'm a bit of a podcast addict myself because I, I, you can pick up so much information from them. So I haven't um, haven't been terribly busy on the podcast front this year because I had a little Ironman event to do. Um, but I'm hoping to um, to uh, get some more out there soon. So the name of the podcast is called COPD Wellness. Uh, you can be downloaded from iTunes or. It's actually also on my website, which is uh, COPD Athlete. Um, so what we're, we're going to do with that into the future is also have more patient stories. Um, one I've recorded um, earlier this year is about um, uh, a patient who's doing the New York Marathon this year, and she's running it with supplementary oxygen. So I think those sort of sto- stories will really resonate with, with patients
0: yeah absolutely and I think also for family uh, I was really hit right at the start of the, um uh this interview where you were saying that your wife sort of giggled at you your you know doctor sort of said mm, had a bit of a smile, so I think actually we do need to know uh how to support people if they want to take um you know the next step and do something that perhaps we think is a uh don't know how to phrase this a little bit much, uh, but how we can, um, what we can do to support people. So I think that's really helpful to hear, and to hear that it is uh, possible.
1: Well look, absolutely, and you know, I will quite openly say, um, in the early stages of um, when I was doing these events, my first... um, uh, Ironman and marathons. I was I was certainly questioned by another people, a number of people, about how severe my disease was. Um, I think I've been diagnosed and re diagnosed more than any other patient in the world. But um, <laughs> the fact the the fact is that you know we can do these things. Um, we don't have to, but we can. And you know, as I said before, just you never judge a patient by their numbers and for a patient, never let your disease define
0: you okay well i think that's probably a perfect way to uh finish this uh russell so i can only thank you so much for your time um you know to and for your honest account really of how you got into these events um how you manage them i've certainly learned a lot uh and i'm sure our listeners will so thank you very much
1: Thank you both for the opportunity um, to share my story and, and hopefully uh, listeners will get uh, something out of it.
0: I'm sure they will. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Russell. Thanks very much to both of you.